Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. News stories and late night television have panned one of the newest members of President Trump's cabinet, Betsy DeVos. The new education secretary is a billionaire and not a product of public education. Does that mean she's not qualified? Today we ask that question to experts and educators in Connecticut. We'll speak with leaders from within traditional public schools and charter schools, and we want to hear from you too. Now coming up later, a new investigation by Connecticut's child advocate finds that Hartford Public Schools has failed to adequately respond to allegations of suspected abuse and neglect against school staff. We'll talk with Sarah Egan and hear from Hartford's acting superintendent of schools. That's later. But first, are you the parent of a school-aged child? What improvements in education would you like to see at the local level? What role do you want Education Secretary DeVos to fill from Washington? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome to the show Sarah Darville. She's national editor at Chalkbeat. It's a nonprofit education news organization, and she joins us from the NPR studios in New York. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So remind us again, if we didn't get enough of the last few weeks, why Betsy DeVos is such a controversial pick for education secretary. Well, like you mentioned um, at the start of the show, she doesn't have um, personal experience with public education. She didn't go to public schools herself. She didn't send her kids to public school. Um, And she also hasn't been an educator. Um, And that definitely has, uh, you know, raised a red flag with some people who who want that kind of experience in the the head of the U.S. Education Department. And on top of that, she, um, you know, she spent a lot of um, influence and uh, money when she was in Michigan advocating for uh, school choice Um, school vouchers, charter schools. And she also had a rocky confirmation hearing. You know, uh, she had the remarks about uh, needing guns in schools to protect students from grizzly bears that launched a thousand memes. Um, You know, she seemed uninformed on some on some issues during the confirmation hearing. So I think all of that together has has, you know, really raised her profile So we've heard a lot from um, teacher unions, not only in Connecticut, but around the country uh, from public, uh, traditional public schools. You know, they're worried about someone like Betsy DeVos. You know, why is it so controversial about um, her support for both charter schools and voucher programs in the state of Michigan? Yeah, I mean, voucher programs in general, they involve allowing families to take uh, you know, funding that would go to schools and, and allowing them to allowing families to use that money in, you know, to pay private school tuition. So that's that's a controversial um, idea, because that means that you're taking, you know, government funds and allowing them in some cases to go toward religious schools. So I think that's part of it. Um, and specifically in Michigan, you know, in, in Detroit, the situation there with charter schools is there's not a great system for um, determining how many charter schools should open, um, where they're needed, when to close them. And so you have a situation where there are a lot more schools than 
than students to fill them in Detroit. And that's created a lot of difficulties there. Um, And she played a big role in kind of advocating for uh, systems that, you know, didn't that some people see as, you know, not helping that situation of not, you know, providing the, the an amount of oversight that those schools really need. At the same time, there are people that um, like this choice. You know, what is it about her that makes people excited uh, for uh, the future under her leadership? I think a lot of people who, you know, want vouchers to be a part of this conversation about how to improve schools in this country are excited. And I think, you know, people who feel that private schools and um, for-profit schools, virtual schools, uh, she gave an interview yesterday um, that was published this morning, you know, in which she said she expects those kinds of schools to increase under her tenure. So I think those, um, you know, people who are who are interested in seeing those be more of part of the conversation are are excited by her pick. And that threatens the traditional public school role if more parents have choice to send their children uh, to charter schools, if they're able to use voucher programs, that the money won't be there to sustain traditional public education? In some ways. I mean, you know, that depends a lot on local context. And one thing that, um, you know, we have focused on a lot at Chalkbeat is is reminding people really that um, so much of the power in education is local. It is at the state level and at the local level. Um, You know, Betsy DeVos is not an all-powerful figure to change the way that education in this country works. Um, so I think that's important to remember, too. And that's an important point. Again, I'm talking with Sarah Darville, national editor at Chalkbeat. You can read more about uh, their reporting at chalkbeat.org. But let's talk about the responsibilities that the education secretary does have. And, and again, the power that you say still belongs to uh, local municipalities and, and school boards. Yeah. And, you know, what the power that she does have, um, a lot of that power has to do with um, you know, enforcing laws about civil rights and um, equity in education. You know, the Department of Education oversees, and they have their own office of, of civil rights, and um, they deal with complaints about school, um, you know, schools and students not being treated fairly. Um, and what, you know, she does with that role is going to be really important to watch, I think. Um, and the education department also oversees, um, you know, the federal funding that does go to education, education funding that goes to um, schools that serve a lot of poor students and funding that goes to um, help students with disabilities. So those those um, aspects of funding, I think, are going to also, you know, those are key parts of her responsibilities. Uh, you mentioned um, individual, um, the you know, the idea of whether the laws that protect students with disabilities, you know, that's something that she didn't seem to understand during the confirmation hearings uh, was, you know, uh, should should she get the benefit of the doubt that now that she's in this position that she's going to be, you know, surrounded by staff that's going to tell her, like, these are the the laws that we have and these things need to be followed? I would assume so. (laughs) Um, And she's also, um, that's been one point that I think in her initial interviews after being confirmed and her first speech after being confirmed, she's really tried to hit that point many times um, that she wants to 
um, make sure that the department continues to help students with disabilities and their families get the, you know, the services they need. So I think she's pretty eager to put that uh, mistake behind her. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at our new education secretary, uh, Betsy DeVos. We're talking with Sarah Darville, national editor at Chalkbeat. Uh, this is an education a news organization. Um, you know, we wanted, we talked a little bit about um, Betsy DeVos's influence in her home state of Michigan. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, you said that she led um, efforts to for voucher programs, efforts to have more charter schools in that state. What's happened specifically in the city of Detroit because of, the, of those decisions? Well, um, so her her effort to create a you know, statewide voucher program in Michigan years ago didn't succeed, um, and that's sort of what sparked her more national efforts to spread those programs. So she played a role in helping um, and encouraging those programs elsewhere. Um, In Detroit specifically, um, the issue is more of the, (coughs) of the, of charter schools and so how, and how those are regulated. And her family, you know, spent a lot of money trying to kind of influence the recent package of legislation that had to do with, um, you know, how to improve Detroit schools. This is where we live. You can join the conversation. Do you have questions about uh, the role of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Dory is on the line. Dory, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. So I understand you're a teacher. Tell us about uh, where you teach and what your opinion is of our new Education Secretary. Sure. So um, I am a public school teacher here in Connecticut. I'm very proud to say that. Um, I've been a product of public schools as well, um, also here in Connecticut. And um, I'm, I express some of the concerns um, about Betsy DeVos that many public school teachers have, that she has doesn't have a lot of experience in this um, field, and she also doesn't really seem to understand a lot of the struggles that we go through as public school teachers. When you say the struggles, what do you want um, people in Washington to know about what it's like to teach on a daily basis, Dory? Um, I would just like if they were able to open um, the conversation a little bit more. I was a little disappointed. I know um, recently um, both um, Mr. DeVos and President Trump had a roundtable listening conversation, and watching the introductions, I was surprised at the lack of public school voice in that in that group, um, and yet Betsy DeVos herself seems to be very disconnected with um, the needs of public schools. So I think more than anything, I just want her to be able to listen to us and understand what we go through. I'll turn back to Sarah from Chalkbeat. Um, Obviously, you guys cover education around the country in major cities. You're talking to teachers like Dory, but you're also talking to parents. You know, what are you hearing from from parents about um, what what leadership they want to see from someone like Betsy DeVos, Sarah? We actually have been asking that question. Um, we asked um, our readers actually to tell us what what would your message be to uh, to Betsy DeVos, and what do you want her to know? And we we heard a lot of um, from parents and teachers who wanted the secretary to know that they think their schools are working really well and they're proud of their public school. Um, and we also heard from a lot of teachers who. Um, like Dory, who, you know, wanted the secretary to know um, that they're still, you know, either missing crucial resources or just to know the stories of some of the students that they're working with, you know, whether those are students who are in the foster care system or, you know, students who aren't, you know, who don't have the support at home that they need. Um, Just that kind of 
empathy, it seems like, is what a lot of people are looking for. Again, I'm speaking with Sarah Darville, national editor at Chalkbeat. You can read their stories at chalkbeat.org. Sarah, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, now what do educators in Connecticut think of the new education secretary? We heard from one teacher right now. More importantly, what issues or concerns do they want her to address? Coming up, we'll hear from teachers within traditional public schools and charter schools. And we want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email Where We Live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We learned a bit about Betsy DeVos in the last segment from the national editor of education news site Chalkbeat.org. Now, what do educators and school leaders think of the new U.S. Education Secretary? More importantly, what concerns or issues do they want her to address here in Connecticut? To answer those questions, I'm joined in studio now by a teacher. Patty Fusco is a fifth and sixth grade teacher in the gifted and talented program at Kerrigan Intermediate School in West Haven. She's also a member of the labor union AFTC. Connecticut, the Divisional Vice President for Pre-K through 12 Teachers. Patty, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, first off, you're a teacher. How long have you been doing this? I've been teaching close to over 30 years. So 30 years, we've seen lots of education secretaries in Washington come and go. What are your, some of your, um, what's your perspective on Betsy DeVos? I was very concerned because this is the first education secretary that in my career that has no link whatsoever to public education. Um, I've never seen that before. And I was really very surprised and very concerned because um, unless you are involved with the schools, you don't really know what's going on in them. Mm-hmm. Um, our kids are amazing, but they come with a lot more than just, they're not little robots that you program. And I was, I was concerned that she would not understand that. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially after the confirmation hearings, I became even more concerned. The confirmation hearings were definitely eye-opening, but at the same time, now that she's been confirmed, uh, we were talking with the Chalkbeat editor about, um, you know, you hope that there are people within the edu- education department, you know, that have, you know, that are, that understand education, that can help her along as she learns uh, her first few weeks on the job. I mean, do you have any optimism that you know she'll be the right, the right person? I'm just hoping that she's open enough to listen to them and to take their advice and not to. Um, not to ignore what they're trying to tell her, because I think there is something to be said for experience. They haven't always done everything the way we want them to, but at least they know what the job is. And we know not everyone um, shares that sentiment, um, including former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut. Now, he's also a member of the board of the organization that DeVos founded, the American Federation of Children. But this is what he said when he introduced her at her confirmation hearing in January. I know that some people uh, are questioning her qualifications to be secretary of education. And too many of those questions to me seem to be based on the fact that she doesn't come from within the education establishment. But honestly, I believe that today that's one of the most important qualifications you could have for this job. What's your reaction to that? I think he's absolutely wrong. If you don't come from the public school um, community, it's hard to understand what's going on inside the public school community. 
our our um, parents could probably, uh, because they are parents of public schools children, and because they have experienced the system, probably have more experience and could probably lead better than someone who comes from without, because it is different. Um, private schools don't have to deal with a lot of the things that the public schools do. We have all kinds of... Like re- regulations, um, special education needs, and tell us what do you mean. Well, charter schools have to deal with a lot of the regulations or most of the regulations, but they don't have to keep children that are troublesome, so to speak. Um, First of all, the kids who go to charter schools, their parents are generally more involved to know enough to or to feel that they want their child um, in a different kind of school. Um, So they, they aren't we have a lot of those parents, too, in public school. In fact, the DeVos uh, confirmation hearings really, uh, if it did anything, it, it made us very much aware of how supported we are. I think our parents are very much in favor of um, what we do and approve of what we do. Um, but um, if you're not, I mean, if you're a, a charter school, you, you can send back the kids that don't fit the mold. They, they don't come right out and say leave, but they make it difficult for the child. They don't offer the special education services that many of our children, they don't have kids on feeding tubes. They don't have kids that have to have their diapers changed. They don't have kids that spend all day, you know, in a wheelchair or um, uh, nonverbal or any of the other problems that we deal. They don't have homeless kids, I'll bet. I mean, I'd be surprised if they did. That's Patty Fusco again. She's a fifth and sixth grade teacher in the Gifted and Talented program at Kerrigan Intermediate School in West Haven. Um, now we have someone joining the conversation now who's from a charter school here in, in Connecticut. Joining us now is Ronell Swaggerty, CEO of New Beginnings Family Academy. This is a public charter school in Bridgeport. Ronell, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Ronell, tell us about uh, charter schools. And you, you probably heard a little bit about what Patty was saying about challenges within traditional public schools and uh, what charter schools face. You come from the charter school uh, uh, situation. So tell us uh, what are some of your observations and reaction. I did hear what Patty said, and it's interesting because I could completely relate to how she feels in terms of the challenges that um, teachers in traditional public schools face because we – in our public charter school face the same situations and um, we get the same students from our local district as a matter of fact we get students from across the city from different neighborhoods but they are all for the most part poverty impacted and poverty does play a huge role in how um, you know what children bring to school and the challenges that educators face once they get here Um, we at New Beginnings Family Academy which is a 500 student pre-K through grade 8 public charter school in Bridgeport, Connecticut, the large, you know, one of the largest and poorest cities in the state, um, have a nonverbal child currently in our school. We've graduated a child who was wheelchair confined. We serve a 10% special education population. So I could totally relate um, to what Patty was saying about the challenges of public schools. We see them too. And we serve the same children. And what is your opinion of the new education secretary and what she may be doing in Washington that will influence the work that we're doing or you're doing here in Connecticut? You know, Betsy DeVos has um, said some things that has educators concerned across the board, but I'm not particularly concerned, to be honest. 
Um, you know, I'm not that concerned that she doesn't have a traditional education background. Quite frankly, I didn't come from a traditional education background, but I've been at New Beginnings Family Academy for 13 of its 15 years, and my on-the-job training has been incredible. Um, Patty is exactly right. You really don't understand what happens in public schools until you live it. That I completely agree with. It's like an alternate universe almost. Um, the business is is different. Teachers are dealing with 23, 25, 30 different personalities in a classroom. You know, the climate is just different. It's a different kind of business. But once you are here, you can most certainly learn the business, which is what I've done over 13 years, and which is why I'm now able to lead this public charter school. Betsy DeVos is going to be able to learn on the job. She has no choice. Now, is her learning curve going to be huge? Yes. Is it insurmountable? No. She can surround herself with strong, smart, traditional, and non-traditional educators who can help her be successful as our education secretary. To me, what's most important for her is that she can unite people across party lines um, and focus everyone on long-term outcomes for kids because that's why we're in this business in the first place. She doesn't need to have taught kindergarten or third grade. She doesn't need to have served on a board of education. She does need to surround herself with smart people. She needs to get into a lot of public schools. She needs to listen, like Patty said, to a lot of teachers and what they've been through and experienced in a day, and she needs to be open. The good news about Betsy DeVos is that she completely understands from what we know of her. Um, that one size does not fit all in public education. She seems to get that um, better than some traditional educators, quite frankly. Do you mean what that what she helped uh, accomplish or uh, some people say dismantle in Michigan in terms of, of uh, helping lead efforts to open more charter schools there? What I'm saying is that she recognizes that one system of educating public education students is probably insufficient. And so options for parents are needed, and that I appreciate from her. Before we take some more calls, uh, Patty, did you want to respond? I, I agree that one size doesn't fit all. That's um, I actually, our union, AFT, uh, national, um, Al Shanker, who was our president, actually came up with the concept of charter schools and opened the first charter school in Minnesota. Uh, his concept was that a charter school would have an innovative idea of how to educate children. They would um, put that program into place and then take what was working and bring it to the public schools. That hasn't happened. What's happened in Connecticut, at least, and I think throughout the country, is that you have two systems of education. You have the traditional public schools and you have the charter schools. And um, frankly, last year, the funding for the traditional public schools was cut so much where our uh, charter schools didn't. We're now competing for the same money. And we have, uh, that's really been a, a serious problem. I know in my town, our mayor cut us, eight, I'm not our mayor, the governor cut us $850,000 this year, during the school year, once the budget was already made. The town doesn't have the money, the city doesn't have the money to replace that. Um, they don't have $850,000 like in a checking account that they could just start paying the bills. So it's going to impact the schools, supplies, um, 
personnel, if someone leaves, are not replaced. Mm -hmm. So we're working like a skeleton crew. Charter schools were not cut that drastically. I want to bring into the conversation uh, Don Williams. Uh, he's the Director of Policy and Research at CEA, which is the Connecticut Education Association, another uh, teacher union in the state. Uh, Don Williams, also former Senate President, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So we're, we're asking the question of, of what people, educators and school leaders, think of their new education secretary. But when we talk local, we get back to local, which is um, obviously funding and what, what we see happening within the capital with uh, certain uh, towns that are going to be get, getting more cuts in state aid to help struggling cities. I mean, it always seems to go back to funding and how we can adequately fund our public schools. What's your take on uh, that issue? And then, I guess, nationally, what Betsy DeVos, uh, how she's going to impact all this? Uh, well, I'm very concerned. Uh, first of all, the idea that uh, knowledge and expertise should count for little or nothing in selecting a uh, commissioner or secretary of education, I think is very dangerous. I mean, it's like uh, if you found out that your doctor had no medical experience and uh, was, was proud of the fact that he wasn't part of the medical establishment. We wouldn't select a doctor or a lawyer or an electrician or a plumber on that basis. We want knowledge. We want expertise. We want experience, especially in education. Now, when it comes to funding and dollars in Connecticut, uh, what we've seen in terms of her participation in the education debate is that it's been very partisan, very political, uh, she has spent her family's millions of dollars in an effort to funnel taxpayer dollars to private for-profit schools. And her ultimate objective, and she has stated this publicly, is to funnel those taxpayer dollars to religious Christian schools. Uh, this is not what we need in a secretary of education. We need someone who values public education, education that is there for all students, uh, for all communities. That's the danger uh, in this Secretary of Education. And the danger for Connecticut is that she may drop the ball on issues like uh, the ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, where Congress remarkably came together, Democrats and Republicans, at the end of last year and decided, you know what, let's move away from the failed policies of the No Child Left Behind Act that came out uh, just in 2001. Uh, it's been 15, 16 years of trying that. hasn't worked out. Let's look at critical thinking, collaboration, creativity, communication, the kind of life skills that help our children succeed. Uh, this is a crucial time for education policy. Is she going to understand uh, the ESSA and this new direction when in her testimony in front of the Senate, she apparently doesn't even understand the cornerstone of services for special needs students, and that's the Individuals with Disabilities Act. She apparently had no knowledge of that at all and the fact that it creates federal protections that are not voluntary uh, for the states. So I think this is a dangerous choice. Uh, and it reflects this attitude that knowledge and expertise uh, can go out the window, that somehow people will learn on the job for some of the most important and critical tasks that our nation faces. Let's take some listener calls now. Uh, Stephen's calling from Manchester. Stephen, you're on the show. Hello. Uh, yeah, my name is Steve Sloda. I work at the University of Connecticut as both an instructional designer and faculty member in education. Um, the reason I was calling in is actually to sort of synthesize the last comment with what 
uh, Joe Lieberman had said earlier on in the show, the quote from him about the establishment educators. And I think one of the problems in this whole discussion is that there are actually two parallel conversations going on. One is about the politics of education and the way policy influences the way things unfold at the federal level. The other is the actual function of education. And I think one of the bigger problems, as my colleagues and I have argued in the past in our, in our literature and other writings we've done, is that the, the core of education is understanding or having an ideological perspective of what education is intended to accomplish. Is it meant to make better citizens? Is it meant to test skills and make sure that you're meeting some standard for employment? Or is it to make sure you're a well-rounded individual who has sort of this Renaissance man background? And with the selection of Betsy DeVos, all of that gets thrown out the window in service of trying to sort out the debate between private versus public or business versus social. And what we need to be careful of is not throwing out the baby with the bathwater here and looking at it in terms of, okay, well, she comes in with no experience. That's a good thing because it's a clean slate. We can look at things uh, from a new perspective, a fresh perspective. The reality is, as, as the last uh, comment uh, sort of illustrated, is that Betsy DeVos lacking experience in this particular field doesn't necessarily just have repercussions for whatever establishment education is. I don't know exactly what that even means. Um, education is, itself as an institution is meant to fulfill some purpose. And so saying that there's an establishment education system doesn't really make sense. But the fact that it's, it's questionable whether or not Ms. DeVos actually understands the ideology that underpins education as a whole. And if you have somebody in that top-tier position looking at education from the top down and arguing that, well, this is what needs to happen, if that's coming from a position of weak ideology and, and learning and understanding of learning theory, there's simply no way that that individual will be able to learn on the job the things that educators, the establishment educators, have spent decades learning. And that's the, that's the real key of bureaucracy. It's, it's not to slow process down and entrench one way of thinking necessarily, but to put experts into those positions so that they can make decisions that will progress the field or the institution in a way that it needs to go um, organically. Well, so, thank, thank you, Stephen. Yeah, we just have some more listeners to get to, but we appreciate your comment, and it's point well made. Uh, Angela from Hamden, you're on the show. Hi there. Um, my name is Angela Lopez Velasquez, and I'm a faculty member at Southern Connecticut State University. And um, I work with um, educating, training teachers, and I would like to to ask a question or make a comment about a population that I haven't heard at all um, in the conversation so far, and it's uh, uh, the population of English language learners, which is very large in our country. Uh, in Connecticut, we have almost 35,000 English language learners, these are students that have challenges that are very unique to, um, to their experiences. We, um, unfortunately, we don't know very much about them. Uh, they're highly represented in special education here in Connecticut. We don't have programs that train professionals in understanding English language learners and the differences between language difference and language disability. This is something that, you know, we need to be working on. And I'm very concerned with um, having somebody in, um, in such a position of power who doesn't know much about public school and who uh, doesn't know anything about the diversity of the students that we have and, and the unique needs that they have. And uh, here we have somebody who uh, is in charge of a whole department of education at the national level making choices they probably that are going to affect this population of students even more than anybody else because, you know, nobody's talking about this population. So I, I just wanted to throw that coming out there and see what you think. 
Thank you, Angela from Hamden. I'll let uh, Patty Fusco respond, who is a teacher in a public school in West Haven. Uh, I, I very much agree with you, Angela. Um, in our district, we have at least 54 different languages. I know in my school, there are uh, uh, we have a very large percentage. My school services all the fifth and sixth graders in West Haven, and we have a very large, a high uh, number of uh, students who do not speak English. Um, who some some of which we've had students who speak no language. Last year, we had two young men that came from a country in Africa that spoke a language that only they understood, um, and yet we had you know we had to figure out ways to teach. Them. I do agree that that is um, an area that needs a lot of uh, attention. I know that with the new administration um, against immigrants, um, it's it's a problem um, because I'm, my fear is that um, there will be less attention because it, it, the feeling is they shouldn't be here, and yet they are here, and there are kids. We have time for one more listener call. Garrett from South Windsor. Garrett, you're on the show. Hi. I'd just like to um, talk about how I feel the charter system sort of imposes a, a free market approach on education whereby uh, schools compete for students. And I'm really concerned about the type of damage that that system could do um, just by causing schools to compete with one another. Thank you, Garrett, for your question. Um, I'll let Ronell take that question again. She is the CEO of New Beginnings Family Academy, a, a public charter school in Bridgeport. I do think that there is this perception of um, competition between public charters and traditional public schools, but it's a misperception. Um, charter schools do not compete for students, and they do not compete for dollars. Quite frankly, in the state of Connecticut, charter schools are not even part of the educational cost sharing that funds traditional public schools. Charter schools are funded separately by a separate line item. When, when a public school student decides to move from its traditional district school into a charter school, the money that the state sends to that traditional district school stays at that school. The charter school does not receive that money. So there's no competition for funds there. If anything, the district is benefiting because that money does not follow the child. It stays with the district. It's a separate line item. No competition there. In terms of competing for children, there are more than enough children to go around. The issue with charter schools is that parents who cannot afford private schools are able with charter schools to choose the school that's right for their child. This is not a new concept. Rich people do it all the time. They decide that the school closest to their neighborhood, in their neighborhood, is not suitable for their child, so they shop around and find the right school for their child that they can afford. Well, poor people, people impacted by poverty, some working class people can't afford that. And so what they now can do, at least for the past 20 years in Connecticut, is shop around for a charter school for their child. It's a, it's a really simple concept. Um, there's no shortage of children. So there's no competition there. It's just parents having the option to choose the school that works best for them and that school being a public school.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about uh, the future of public education, not only nationwide, but here in Connecticut. We've run out of time, but it sounds like we're going to need to plan another show. I do want to thank, again, uh, Ron L. Swaggerty, CEO of New Beginnings Family Academy, a public charter school in Bridgeport. Also, Don Williams, Director of Policy and Research at the Connecticut Education Association, and Patty Fusco, fifth and sixth grade teacher in the Gifted and Talented Program at Kerrigan Intermediate in West Haven. Thank you all for joining us. Coming up, we're going to look at a very troubling report that shows Hartford Public School District failed to follow up on allegations of abuse and neglect against school employees. Connecticut's child advocate will join us as well as the acting superintendent of Hartford's public schools. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about education here in Connecticut, and we thought we would transition to a report from the Office of Child Advocate, a very troubling report that was released uh, one week ago. Child Advocate Sarah Egan is in studio with me. Welcome back to the show, Sarah. Hi. Thanks so much for having us, Lucy. So for people who uh, didn't read the news reports or listen to them here on WNPR, tell us about this report and what you found. So uh, we were asked last year, last spring, by Mayor Luke Bronin, the Hartford mayor, uh, to look at the district's patterns and practices with regard to mandated reporting after a widely publicized arrest of a high-ranking Hartford Public Schools official for risk of injury to a child uh, in the wake of his uh, allegedly inappropriate contact with that child. Um, We engaged in a nine-month review. We looked at um, extensive educational and child welfare documents, and we came to some, I think, some very unfortunate and disturbing conclusions that the district had not been in compliance with mandated reporting obligations, state, which are state laws, to report suspected child abuse or neglect to law enforcement or child welfare authorities within 12 hours of having such a suspicion. Uh, the policies didn't hadn't conformed to the law for probably about a decade. Uh, we also found numerous other examples of failure to report, and we found that Mr. Hanau had had a, a history of having had previous allegations made against him. This is the director um, who resigned um, for allegedly inappropriate contact with a minor student, uh, but that he was uh, retained uh, in the district despite that and ultimately elevated by previous superintendent. He was promoted. Um, he was promoted. He was promoted, each time. He was promoted uh, ultimately to executive level positions within the district without clear retraining, counseling, or monitoring of his mm-hmm. interaction with students. Um, so I think the, the findings were, were poor. Um, we also found a, a lot of examples of pretty shocking um, allegations of mistreatment towards children. Uh, some very young children, and often, most often, children with special needs and disabilities. So our review is really um, broken down into a couple of parts, one about the history of Mr. Hanau within the district and what it Mm -hmm. could tell us about mandated reporting compliance, two other allegations of mistreatment that we found and what it told us about um, both compliance with mandated reporting obligations but also the treatment of certain children with Mm -hmm. disabilities or specialized needs, Um, And three, a series of recommendations to take a comprehensive look and make comprehensive change. In studio with us now um, is Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez. She's acting superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, I know that um, the school district has an action plan or will be voting on an action plan um, based on this troubling investigation. But I guess the first question I have is how did this happen? 
So as as um, child advocate indicates, you know, there were uh, district-wide failures, quite frankly, in terms of our um, procedures, practices, and um, a culture, a culture regarding the mandatory reporting. And over the years, when you don't tend to the internal functionings of the district or the organization, this is an example of what can happen. Um, and it's the moral imperative in which we failed, right, well, to keep where, our children safe. Where does the buck stop? Is it the principals within these schools? Is it the uh, former superintendents? I mean, why did this? I don't understand. I mean, reading this report, and I'm sure people that have followed this story, it, it's very hard to understand that when you send children uh, to be educated, that you want to ensure that they are also safe. And these are school officials that were alleged to treat children this way. I will tell you that moving forward, it stops with everyone. Mm-hmm. Right at all levels of the organization, making sure that everyone is held accountable, and um, with district-wide training around the requirements um, with regard to mandated reporting, improving our systems to document um, and review the complaints that come in on for students and for adults alike, um, and making sure that we have the systems to ensure that accountability on a continual basis. Mm-hmm. You mentioned culture, so is it a culture of people were fearful of reporting what they saw, or they weren't concerned about it? It can be a, a combination, you know, as, as Child Advocate in, uh, indicated, a culture of um, what are the expectations? Do the people understand what the expectations are and are they being held accountable? Do we have high expectations? And that notion of, of professionalism and being intentional about our practice and striving for excellence in everything that, in, that, that we do. I, I would just add to that, Lucy, that I think one of the challenges, one of the things we found in the Tracing Mr. Hanau's history was that when a previous allegation had been made almost a decade ago about him, it involved a student who we found had told multiple people, adults within the school, teachers and others, that she was uncomfortable with him, that um, she didn't want to be alone with him, um, that he was uh, you know, personally messaging her. Um, and so she, she brought her concerns of discomfort to, um, to uh, employees, people that were authority figures to her, and none of them seemed to know what to do. So they gave her advice like, tell your mom, um, take him off your computer list. This is a principal who allegedly told a student to download or use a webcam on her computer so that they could you know, see each other at night when they had private communications. And I think so what we saw there and over the years is that employees did not, they did not know what to do when they saw a child being mistreated. Um, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of the things we stress is that a child will almost never and in my career, has never said to an adult, I'm being abused or neglected. They say other things. I'm scared. Maybe they don't come to school. Maybe they don't want to be around a particular teacher. Maybe they cry. Um, But they are not going to use words that say, I'm abused or neglected. And so our teachers have to be prepared uh, to know how to respond to suspicions and concerns. Um, Again, um, Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez, acting superintendent of Hartford Public Schools, what do you tell parents within the Hartford School District? Can they trust that their children are safe? We tell parents that we are committed. We are committed to the children, and I, as, as the leader of the organization of the system, am committed to take swift action moving forward um, to make sure that our children come to, to come to school every single day and engage in settings that care and value them. And I want to um, uh, reference the fact that you know the majority, I know, I am, I am 100% sure that um, the overwhelming majority of our administrators, our teachers, our paraprofessionals are dedicated and come to school every single day dedicated 
to serve our children um, in caring um, and professional ways. Um, but as, as the advocate noted, there were instances in which that did not occur. Let's talk about some of those other instances. Again, we've mentioned um, Edward Hanau, um, who's no longer with the district, arrested for risk of injury to a minor. He's pleaded not guilty, due back in court later this month. But Sarah Egan, child advocate, there was another instance that's pretty disturbing involving a first grader at an elementary school and how this first grader was treated to the point where he was telling people that he was suicidal. We're talking about a first grader. Tell us what happened to this child. So this this is actually a child I knew at the time because prior to my job as the child advocate, I was a lawyer who represented children, and this boy was one of my clients. And um, and I really had had it was shocked to discover that there had been repeated internal allegations and witness statements that this child, who was really struggling in school at the time, um, was being abused um, in in the school, both verbally and physically. And he was slapped. Well, there were multiple allegations that he was f- physically harmed um, in, in the school setting. Hit, by a kicked teacher. by teacher and other other school employees. Um, and and yes, it's also true that concurrent to that, he would make statements that he wanted to die. And this is a first grade boy. Um, now he had a lot of things going on in his life. I mean, this child was in foster care because of a history of having been abused. Um, and he was struggling in school. And what he needed more than anything, I will never forget in that case that there was an outside professional who advised his entire educational team. This is not in the report, but I'll tell you. That said, he is a child who is profoundly affected by trauma and anxiety. And he needs constant reassurance that he is safe and okay. And he may need it every 15 minutes. And as we can see from the report, that that was not what his experience was. And so part of, you know, that was a terrible, terrible series of incidents. And the district did go through some effort at retraining after that. Um, unfortunately. What happened, what happened to the staff accused? Dr. Rodriguez, what happened to the staff accused of abusing this child? So we are um, looking and cross-referencing. And um, I have spoken to um, our legal department. And we are um, finding that almost all of the people that were referenced in the report are no longer with us. We're just doing final um, cross-checks around that. Sarah Egan, your office investigated for nine months. In this particular instance, the people responsible for the mistreatment of the child, some of them are still employed. Some, I think, are still there, yes, in the district. And so that's Um, why I wanted to ask about this case, uh, Superintendent uh, Rodriguez, because it's you said a majority of, and we believe this, we hope that a majority of the educators are committed to following the law and making sure that children are safe, but there are still employees within the district that are that are involved in these kinds of instances. So what we have found is that anyone currently working in the Hartford Public Schools who has um, been substantiated of the abuse is not working there. And Sarah, you can maybe speak to that a little bit in terms of the substantiation and the reversal. Right. So I think that that, that I mean, that's a Uh, a very fair point. And I think that one of the things we found in our report is that the Child Welfare Agency uh, was often not substantiating the allegations. um, DCF. DCF. Or or that allegations would be substantiated but then reversed uh, in an an administrative appeal. Um, In the case that you just referenced before, Lucy, um, there was a substantiation um, and a placement of a school employee on the central registry. Um, My review indicated that both of those findings were reversed and that ultimately um, the district was not successful in its effort to terminate um, one of those school employees. And I think that these are issues that the district is looking very closely at now. I I do want to say that 
as, look, the findings that we made and shared with the district and with the public are heart, they're heartbreaking. They're heartbreaking. They're horrifying. As a and as a parent, you know, I I mean, look, I, I cried reading some of this stuff. I mean, I you know, but but I I do want to stress that um, one of the things we've been encouraged by is this uh, the effort that uh, the acting superintendent has been making with us to put together with us with our office um, a very transparent action plan and inviting our office to maintain. Um, in an independent way, uh, a role in creating remedies. That's not something we, we're always invited to do, uh, and we really appreciate that. You know, we just have a couple of minutes, and I just wanted to ask you a larger question. You were asked to investigate Hartford Public Schools. Your office did. What about other schools in the state? I'm glad you asked that. First, I think it's noteworthy that we were asked to come in. This, we're an independent watchdog agency, and anybody that's taken a look at our website sees that when we come in, we dig in, and we go where the facts lead us. So I think that it is to uh, the city of Hartford's credit that they invited in this office to dig, look under their hood, and they have um, accepted the findings that we have made. I think that we do share concerns and have concerns that these issues are not isolated to this school district. Um, just before I came in this morning, I took a quick look through our recent um, intakes and complaints that we've been responding to, and one, two, three, four, five, came up with six um, various districts and or programs where we have had concerns that mistreatment of a child was not reported by a school district. Um, we have a current investigation into another school district for allegations of failure to uh, report when the allegation of mistreatment is that it's done by a school employee. So I think that going forward, I think DCF has a pretty big role to play. We found that they were not tracking, um, investigating failures to report by school districts, which is required by state law. They're working to remedy that. We think the State Department of Ed has an increased role to play in monitoring. Um, but the issues are not are are not unique to Hartford. I want to thank Sarah Egan, child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Thank you for coming on and just telling us a little bit about this report. Also, yeah, Dr. You. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez, acting superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. We know you have an action plan. Maybe you can come back in a few months to tell us what's being remedied. Absolutely. And how, to do that. And how uh, parents can and not worry about their children. We so. are, if you allow me a 30-second plug here, we are having our first community forum in collaboration with the Office of the Child Advocate um, so that our families and community can interact with, with the action plan on uh, Monday the 27th. Okay, we'll make sure we, that we tweet and put that on our Great. website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Our show is produced by Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.